You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our scriptures together this afternoon. We turn to the gospel according to John chapter 14. One of the reasons why I chose this particular scripture reading is not simply because it speaks about the Holy Spirit as the comforter, and counselor, but also because this particular chapter of Scripture, like so many chapters of Holy Scripture, is rich with the interaction of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God that we're dealing with this afternoon. So let's begin with chapter 14, verse 1, where the word of our God reads as follows. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe in me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. If you love me, you will obey what I command and I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore. But you will see me, because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. 
He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Let us turn to Glory's Day 8, question and answer 24 and 25. How are these articles divided into three parts? The first is about God the Father and our creation. The second about God the Son and our redemption. The third about God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Since there is only one God, why do you speak of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one true eternal God. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, when we come to some Lord's Days of the Heidelberg Catechism, the temptation is there to strap on the boxing gloves, to jump into the ring, and to get ready for a few rounds. Of course, I'm speaking metaphorically and not literally, but still there are any number of Lord's Days that bring out this reaction in us. I think of Lord's Day 3 which is so bold as to accuse us of being so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil. Those are fighting words for some people. Or what about Lord's Day 4, which speaks so bluntly about punishment, total punishment, body and soul, as well as everlasting punishment. More disagreeable words and testy teachings. Or there is Lord's Day 9, which stresses that our Heavenly Father is the creator and not chance. Bring on the evolutionists. Or what about Lord's Day 27, which would have us spar with those Baptists out there who are of the opinion that the children of believers should not be baptized. And as well, there are the Roman Catholics who insist that the Mass is the only way to go. You see, really, if you go through the catechism, there is no shortage of sparring partners. Yes, and the same can be said about the Lord's Day that we have come to this afternoon. It can also be said about Lord's Day 8. There as well, we are tempted to jump into the ring and to mix it up with every anti-Trinitarian that we can find. Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, Jew, Muslim, Christadelphian, and so forth. And indeed, sometimes the beloved Lord's Day 8 is used as nothing more than a springboard to get at all the deniers of the three-in-one. Now, it has to be said, of course, there's nothing wrong with standing up for what you believe. And indeed, I would even remind you that the Apostle Paul talks about the Christian as a soldier who is armed to the hilt. He has on a belt of truth, a breastplate of righteousness, protected feet, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. The imagery there is one of be ready to do battle. But nevertheless, I would also remind you that there are times when soldiers are granted leave and are on furlough. There are times when they get to smell the roses and to enjoy the sunshine. 
And the same applies to us as believers. It also applies here in Lord's Day 8. When you read it, you do not have to think immediately of theological fisticuffs, of going to war with all of the anti-Trinitarians out there. Now stand back, keep your cool, and reflect on what this Lord's Day is all about. It's about our God. It's not in the first place about all of his opponents. Now, it's about our God as the triune God. The person of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. It's about the three in one, trinity in unity, unity in trinity. Yes, it's about them. And do not overlook this. It's also about us. For this is not about the triune God in isolation. No, this is about the triune God in communion with one another and with us. It's about who they are and who they are for us. Now, beloved, I dare say that in that there is wonder. In that there is marvel and enjoyment as well. And so I'd like to preach to you this afternoon on basking in the love of the triune God. We're going to look at the Father who makes us, the Son who saves us, and the Spirit who changes us. Now I realize that many of you may not use or even be familiar with the word basking. You all do it, but you may not right away recognize the word When I was preparing this sermon, it suddenly came into my mind, and I thought, hmm, is that really a a good word to use in this context? So I pulled out my dictionary, and it confirmed my suspicions, for one of the meanings of the verb to bask is to derive great pleasure from. And you know, that kind of summarizes what our approach should be to God, to the triune God. We should be deriving great pleasure from him. But in what way, you ask? Well, in the first place, take God the Father. How can and should we find pleasure in him? How do we enjoy him? Well, the clue lies in answer 24 of the Heidelberg Catechism. For there we are told that the Apostles' Creed, that most ancient, basic, and universal of creeds, can be divided into three parts, into three Trinitarian parts. And what three parts are that? Well, these three, God the Father in our creation, God the Son in our redemption, God the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. So when we come to the triune God, what should we think about first? Well, the catechism says and teaches us the first thing that you should think about is God the Father and our creation. In other words, the catechism is saying it has studied the scriptures and it has been led to conclude that the prime, the basic, the overriding work of God the Father is the work of creation. 
Of course, this is not to deny that God the Father is involved with a great many other things as well. But more than anything else, he's the creator. So what does that tell you? It tells you that everything that owes its existence or exists owes its existence to God. If he hadn't made it, it wouldn't be there. If he hadn't called it into existence, it wouldn't exist. If he hadn't planned, designed, executed it, it would not have happened. God the Father is the creator. Creator of everything. But then note what stands out here. It's the fact that he is, says is responsible for our creation. Once again, the catechism is getting very personal here. It's talking about you and me, and it's asserting that you and I would not be here without him. And in short, we need to identify with this. Creation is not just something that involves God and all of that neutral matter out there. No, it involves each of us. We are his handiwork. I owe my life to him. And you know, that's not hard to defend, biblically speaking, For example, here, Psalm 139 comes to mind. In that marvelous psalm, we hear God described, first of all, as omniscient. He knows it all, my rising, my sitting, my thoughts, my lying down, my future words. And after speaking about God as being omniscient, it goes on to speak about him as omnipresent. Where can I go from your spirit? Heaven? The depths, the wings of the dawn, the far side of the sea. No matter where I go, you're there. And thereafter, the psalmist speaks about our God as the omnipotent creator. And he says, you created my inmost being. You knit, you made, you wove, you saw, you ordained. So God. Paralleling Psalm 139 is Job 10. There Job confesses God's creative power as well in a very personal manner. And he says, you know, Lord, your hands, they shaped me and made me. You molded me like clay. You poured me out like milk and curdled me like cheese. You clothed me with skin and flesh. You knit me together with bones and sinews. You gave me life. You watch over my spirit. In light of those awesome words, it's not surprising that many of us were walking the pavement yesterday on both sides of 200th Street in Langley. When you see how wonderfully made we are, it's not possible to ignore the fact that abortion is destroying God's work. Our God is a God of life. But our world these days is actively embracing a culture of death. 
And so we cannot but speak out and testify. And also we cannot but continue to praise God. To praise the Father for the marvelous way in which he has made and fashioned us. We're not just a collection of Adam. We're not just a bunch of accidents. We're not simply matter. We're not the recipients of an aimless life and an empty future. Oh God, our Father has made us. We are the apple of his eye. We are the product of his genius. We are his handiwork. He's made us so full of plans and purpose and potential. And you know how that should give us a shot in the arm, especially when we're down in ourselves and we're down on life? Why bother living? What's the sense? Where's the profit? Well, it's all there. But only when you live your life with your hand firmly implanted in the hand of your heavenly Father. He's our creator. He's your creator. Never forget it. And always bask in this marvelous truth and certainty. And what a pleasure it will afford you. But then, beloved, if there's God the Father, there's also God the Son. And if there is creation, there is redemption. And if there is our creation, there is also our redemption. Now, that word redemption is not a difficult word, but again, I suspect it's somewhat of a forgotten word today. We don't use it a lot. And the background and the context of that word originally is the world of slavery. We know that today slavery still exists in some parts of the world, whereas in other places it's gone underground. But still, by and large, we do not know very much about slavery. But by the same token, if we were living 150 or 200 years ago, we would know lots about slavery because in those days slavery was very common. Slavery was even considered to be normal. It was just a fact of life that some people got bought and they got sold just as you would buy and sell a sack of potatoes or a bushel of corn or a basket full of clothes or a bunch of animals or acres of property. And no doubt all of those people yearned to be free. But only a few ever became free. And if they became free, it was usually because they were able to buy their own freedom or someone else would help them to buy their freedom. Oh yes, freedom was possible, only it would cost you. You had to pay for it. And the price that you paid in those days was called the redemption price. Literally, to redeem means to buy back. And literally, redemption refers to a process by which a person is bought back from slavery and freedom. Well, you say, that's interesting. What does it have to do with us? I'm free. We're all free. All the men and women, all the boys and girls here, everybody is free. Only 
Don't be too quick and too easy. For Scripture says that by nature, we are not free. That indeed by both nature and birth, we are enslaved. We are polluted by sin and we are controlled by the devil. We belong to the kingdom of darkness. Remember what the psalmist says in Psalm 14 and the Apostle Paul quotes in his letter to the Romans. There is no one who does good. They're corrupt. Their deeds are vile. The Lord looks down from heaven to see and all have turned aside, become corrupt, and no one does good. No, not even one. You see, by nature and origin, corruption is really our lot. Sin infects us. The devil controls us. We're enslaved, we're in bondage, we're not our own, we belong to the devil. That's the real, plain, unvarnished, ugly truth. But thankfully, thankfully it is not the only truth. For there is God, the Son, and our redemption. You know, John 3, verse 16 is not the most famous scripture in the world for nothing. When it declares, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, it's telling us about the greatest rescue mission in all of the world and in all of history. It's telling us that God sees us in our sin, in our lostness, in our bondage. But that he doesn't abandon us to us, nor does he wipe his holy hands of it. No, he decides to send his son, his one and only son, his begotten son, to give hope, to give a new beginning, a new future, a new freedom. And how? How does he accomplish this? How will he pull it off? The only way is the way of redemption. Someone has to come and buy back our world, our life, our future. Someone has to pay the price for our freedom. And who and what and how? Well, turn with me to 1 Peter, chapter 1. Page 1887. 2 Peter, chapter 1. Notice the verses 18 and 19 where it says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish 
or defect. It's worth reading that passage over several times. It's a remarkable passage. It's all about how we were redeemed. But notice, it's not by silver or gold. And you may know that currently those precious metals are are all the rage. and, And many people think that silver and gold are the only secure things in an insecure world. Well, wrong, Peter says. He calls them perishable things. You can lose them. They can be stolen. You can't take them with you when you die. So if we're going to be redeemed, we need something better. But what's better than property, better than diamonds, better than silver and gold? Do we know? Not in and of ourselves. But the Scripture knows. The Scripture says what's better than all of these things is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And when that precious blood of Christ acts as the price of your redemption, and it works, Peter says, and you were redeemed. You were redeemed, past tense, from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. The precious blood of Christ has redeemed us, freed us, brought us back. But of course you might wonder just how well did it do so? And how long? For how long does it do so? Well, the answer, beloved, is in Hebrews 9, verse 12. And in these words, he did not enter by means of the blood of bulls and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Notice, the redemption of Christ is eternal. It lasts forever. Once we are free, we are free ever and always. Christ's work is that one perfect, lasting, permanent work. And now, beloved, is that not something to bask in? Is that not something to take great pleasure from? Just stop for a moment and consider the price. Look at what Jesus Christ paid, what it cost him. It cost him his glory. It cost him his majesty. It cost him his comfort. It cost him humiliation, ridicule, insult, sorrow, pain, torment, hell, even death and wrath. It cost him so much, yet he bore it all. He bore it all for the likes of you and I. Now, is that not something that deserves eternal reflection and boundless praise? How blessed we are to have such a champion, such a savior, such a mediator, such a Lord. Count your blessings every day. Count your blessings in Christ. And so we give the triune God praise for the work of the Father and the Son, and that leaves one more reason for us to consider briefly. 
It has to do with the Holy Spirit, and it has to do with the Holy Spirit in our our sanctification. So where is the basking in connection with the Spirit? And where lies the pleasure? Well, it lies in the fact that, that not only does God the Father make us and God the Son save us, but the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, changes us. And that too is needed. For imagine here you are, a redeemed person, and that's it. There's no more. Imagine that your status has changed, but your nature remains unchanged. And that it remains just as crooked, depraved, deprived, and debauched as ever. Where's the happiness in that? Where's the sense? Where's the blessing? And of course, there is none. And that's why God, the triune God, goes one step further. He not only decides to make us and to save us, but also to change us. The Holy Spirit is given the charge to sanctify us, which is to purify us, to make us holy, to transform us. We read about that in John 14. You can read about it as well in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Consider only these words. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And again, what wonderful words and what precious truths. The Spirit is busy transforming us, changing us. And if you ask changing us in what way? Well, changing us so that we will be able to be free and to live free. Changing us so that we may live as God's redeemed children. Changing us so that we may shine like stars in the universe. Changing us so that we may be ready for a life of glory in a world of glory, clothed with a body of glory. And you know, that is no small work. Change never is. Some of you wives here have been trying to change your husbands for ages. And how's it going? Easy work? Piece of cake? No problem? Hardly. Change? It's hard. It's hard to change others. It's hard to change husbands. It's hard to change children. And you know it's hard to change oneself. One's habits, one's hang-ups, one's outlooks, one's personality. And yet change, that's what the Holy Spirit majors in. He changes hearts and lives, outlooks and attitudes, habits and hang-ups. And as a matter of fact, he is the only great an effective transformer. And I say that to you because look at what he did. 
He takes a Simon and he turns him into Peter. He takes a Saul and he turns him into a Paul. Look what he does to the Ethiopian eunuch, to the Philippian jailer, to Cornelius the Roman, to Tryphena and Tryphosa and Persis and Andronicus and Junius. You can read all about them in Romans 16. The list goes on and on through ancient times and into modern times. The list goes on even among us who are seated here together this day. The Spirit is in the remodeling business. Only He remodels our lives, not our homes, our hearts, not our cars. Yes, and also this. There's reason to bask and to take great pleasure in the Holy Spirit. You know, is it really any wonder that the Apostle Paul asks in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? If, if the triune God is for us, who can ever be against us? If the Father is making us, if the Son is redeeming us, if the Spirit is changing us, what more could we possibly ask for? What richer blessings? What greater riches? And so, beloved, I say to you this afternoon, soldier on. But don't forget to stop and bask. In the love of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.